Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. first 15 verses tonight. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and his kings as he had done to Jericho and its kings, and how the inhabitants of Gideon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because he was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. None a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up upon them, suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic, because Israel struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machadah. As they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajanlan. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nations stood vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been today no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Please be seated. If you are a parent or a grandparent, then you are answering requests all day long. I know in my house, especially with my four children, it is constant. Questions of, can we do this? Or can we have that? Or this or that? Or can we go here or over there? And there's a lot of yes and no and maybes. And with you that are grandparents, there are probably more yeses than there should be. 
Your grandkids know that you are a soft target and they take full advantage of it. But even then, with your precious grandchildren or your children, answering requests can get quite exhaustive. That is another reason you know that God is God. Because if you get tired and weary from just your children, think of God. The God who never slumbers nor sleeps, but hears the requests and pleads of all of his children all around the world, all the time. And answers them all according to his will. And we can praise God that our requests never fall upon deaf ears as they are brought to our Heavenly Father. And the Lord is pleased to answer them, just as you are pleased as a parent, though oftentimes exhausted, to answer the request of your children. And that is because you love them. And if your child or grandchild is in urgent need, then you would drop everything in a moment to take care of them or take care of that request. And the same is true with Almighty God. He hears and He answers because He is loving. In fact, love defines His very existence. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And He answers prayer. And if His children are in need and trouble, He does answer. And does so with quickness and haste. And we see that in this passage this evening, that the Gibeonites, though deceivers who previously deceived Joshua and Israel, are in trouble. And Joshua and Israel come to their defense, come to their rescue. And as a result, Almighty God acts. And He does so with haste and even vengeance. He delivers them and defends them. And we can be confident that He will and does do the same for us. And so we'll see this passage tonight in three points. The defense of the helpless, this warrior of heaven, and third, the power and privilege of prayer. First, the defense of the helpless. Last week we looked how Joshua and Israel were deceived with the Gibeonites. They made a covenant with them because the Gibeonites lied to them. If you were here, you heard of how they dressed and wore out garments. And they took dry and crumbly bread and they said with their words that they were from a distant land, even from a very distant land, and that they had come a very long ways, a very long journey to get to Joshua. But later we read that none of it was true. They were from nearby, approximately 30 miles away. They were Canaanites. And even though the Gibeonites sinned, and even though Israel entered into that covenant under false pretenses, Joshua and the people honored that covenant with them. And you might ask, why would they do such a thing? Well, because they made that covenant in the name of God. And even though they did not consult God before they made that covenant, and that was their mistake, nevertheless, the name was made in the almighty and holy name of God. And therefore, for them to now break that covenant would to bring disrepute 
not only against Israel itself, but the God of Israel. And the Gibeonites and all of Canaan would know. And so they honored God and honored the name of God so as not to bring dishonor upon Almighty God. And there we learn a lesson, do we not, that we as Christians are to do the same, that we are to have a reverence for the name of God. And because of his works and his deeds and our lives should be reflections upon that. That we do not want our actions to bring dishonor upon God. And so often that seems of such little concern today. Even within the church. For the ill of the church and obviously for ill of the name of God which is to be holy. Well what type of covenant did Joshua and the people make with Gibeon? Well, it's difficult to know for sure. But it seems as if there was a truce that was made that the Gibeonites would come underneath them. As they say in verse 11 of chapter 9, that they were going to be their servants and even call themselves servants to Israel. And so they become willing servants, bond servants. And as a result, they come under the household of Israel, if we can put it that way. And as a result, because they come underneath that household, then Joshua and Israel are to provide for them and to protect them, like a father would a child. As we hear in the fifth catechism question on the fifth commandment, it says that, The fifth commandment requires that protection and provision be given from the greater to the lesser, or as it says, from the superior to the inferior. That the sins of the fifth commandment are when the greater, the one that is over top or the ones that come underneath their care, carelessly expose or leave them to wrong, temptation and or Danger. Do you hear that? That those that come underneath our care, we are to provide for them, to not carelessly expose them or leave them to wrong temptation or danger. And so what do we read in the very next passage? Chapter 10, our passage tonight. That the Gibeonites find themselves in danger. We read here in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, is angry at the Gibeonites because they were supposed to be a part of this alliance that we read about in the first verses of chapter 9. And now they have made a truce with Israel. And that is no small matter because Gibeon was a great city. In fact, the king of Adonai Zedek says that he feared because all of the men of Gibeon were warriors. And so the king of Jerusalem sees them now as traitors. And he gets together these other crew of Canaanite kings that we see listed there at the beginning of chapter 10. And they form together to go teach the Gibeonites a lesson of What happens to traitors? We see a great difference, do we not, between the ways of this world and the ways of God. That the kings, when they see a traitor, 
go after to attack them. But even though the Gibeonites were traitors, and they were even traitors to Israel, God does not deal with them in that way. But we read here in verse 5 that they went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon to make war against them. And so what do the Gibeonites do? Well, they cry out, and they cry out for help. It says in verse 6, the Gibeonites said, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the king of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Notice those three pleas. Come up quickly. Save us. Help us. And it seems as if this might even be a little bit of a test for Israel. How true is Joshua and Israel going to be to that word, to that covenant that they made with the Gibeonites? And you might suspect several different responses. You might think that Joshua would say to these Gibeonites, well, it serves you right, you liars and you deceivers. You're getting what comes to you. Or they could have took the passive route and said, well, we made covenant with you that we would not kill you or do any harm to you, but that doesn't mean that others can't. Or perhaps they could have thought, oh, the Gibeonites, they're they're crying wolf. We're going to come up and then they're going to ambush us because they're deceivers and they're liars. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. But notice none of those are the responses that Joshua and Israel give. And yet, how easy would those have been? And I wonder if those would have been our responses. But notice instead what Joshua does. As the Gibeonites cry out. It says, Joshua went up with all the mighty men of valor. It says that he went up at once, verse 7. And notice this even in verse 9. It said, Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Again, as we mentioned, this would have been a 30-mile trek. By foot, that is quite the distance. And Joshua doesn't say to Gibeon, oh, we hear you and we will get to you next week. No, he makes haste. And it says that he does not even stop to rest in the night. And remember, Joshua is approximately 82 years old at this time. How many... 80-year-olds in here have an all-night march in them. I know that myself, being half that age, I'm not so sure that I do. And that is why Joshua is is such a hero and, and such a model leader. Because he makes haste. And again, for whom? He is making haste for a group that 
earlier deceived him and lied to him. These are not model citizens. These are lying servants. But it does not matter. His obligation is still to them. They are under his protection, under his well-keeping. And therefore, Joshua engages in war to defend them and to help them. Putting himself and others in harm's way because of this covenant relationship that he has made with them. And so Joshua is a living example of what it says in Psalm 15, verse 4, that those whose walk is blameless swear to his own hurt and does not change. Swears to his own hurt and even to injury to himself because he will not lie, he will not change his word. And so he is willing to go out of his way, so to speak, because he has given his word to the Gibeonites. There is several lessons here. First, we learn what it means to be in a covenant relationship, do we not? That a covenant is not to be broken. And God never breaks his covenant with us, ever, even though he would have good reason to. And we can even see ourselves, as it were, in the Gibeonites, can we not? Because we can be quick to read this passage and think, oh, the Gibeonites, they are not worth all of this concern. They do not deserve this kindness. They do not deserve the least of these mercies in the light of what they have done. Those sinful foreigners. And all of a sudden we quickly realize that we are speaking of ourselves. Are we not? Did Paul not say in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking to Gentile believers, remember that one time you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Indeed, we were enemies and strangers to God and to the covenant, and yet God was kind to rescue and to save us, to give mercy and grace which we did not deserve, to make a covenant with us, a covenant that He keeps to His own hurt, which we see in the death of His only begotten Son. Indeed, we see this relationship and this aspect of covenant, not only Joshua with the Gibeonites, but us with God and what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we learn how to treat those underneath our care. Obviously, this applies to family members. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, that those do not provide for their own family, for their own relatives, especially of their own household, has denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. We see this idea of what is required of those that are underneath our care, but it goes beyond even our immediate family, does it not? That it goes to those that are defenseless, those that are under our care that we're able to help. Think of how often the scripture talks about the widow and the orphan. 
Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, says Almighty God. Psalm 68.5, he is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. Is God in his holy habitation? James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. God has a special ear to those that are defenseless. In the church, the family of God must take special note, a special responsibility of these folks because they are the most vulnerable and the most easily taken advantage of. And so who is it that will stand up for their cause? Well, we see that the Almighty God does, and we as the church must do as well. This is not only true of widows and orphans, but this is true of the unborn as well. And I'm thankful that we are not neutral on that point. The ministries that we partner with that deal in this area, Cobb Pregnancy and Bethany Christian Services, these are valuable partnerships and ministries to minister alongside with. Because again, God would be a God of those that are not able to defend and help themselves. And so must we. Third, I think this passage also would teach us something about immigration. Not to delve too deeply into politics or the hot topic of the day, but those that come to this country, even perhaps illegally, have the right to be rightly cared for and protected. That there's basic care that should be given to all. That we as a model nation should do such. Why? Because all people, no matter where they come from, are made in the image of God. Well, seconds then, as we move on, we see here this warrior of heaven. That comes to the defense of the Gibeonites. With all of those things that we have just heard, then we should not be surprised that God acts. Because he has promised to do so. And he has given the means by which his promise will take place. We see this promise in verse 8 that he gives to Joshua. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you again this is a reiteration of the promises that were given at the very beginning and it is repeated several times to Joshua and to the Israelites why because we so quickly forget and so quickly need the reminders of God all of the time but notice that that promise does not diminish the means that the one does not exclude the other that Joshua still has to go out And go and fight and battle. But we notice this in verse 10. It says, And the Lord threw them into a panic. And then there is some discrepancy with some translations where different translations do not know who to attribute here the subject of these following verbs. Who struck them with a great blow and chased them by the way of ascent. And struck them as far as Ezekah and Makedah. 
Obviously, on the one hand, we know that Israel was the one that was doing the act, but it was God that was doing it through them, that God was acting on their behalf, that God was using the means, but He is the one that is behind it. And I think that is why there is that uh, discrepancy and there's hard to know and to interpret who it is that is acting here. Is it Israel or is it God Himself? I think we can say that it is both. Because even as it says at the very end in verse 14, for the Lord fought for Israel. And we should not be described that, surprised that God is described in this way, that he is causing a panic, that he is chasing and that he is striking down. Because if the lesser Joshua is concerned for Gibeon, that he would make haste and march through the night, how much more the greater Joshua has concern and care for the love for his people. That God is not passively sitting by in heaven. No, he's acting on our behalf. The catechism question, as you know so well, puts it this way. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's not only true in the Old Testament, in the days of Joshua, that is true now, that God is continuing to defeat his enemies and ours in ruling, subduing, and defending us from them. So it is right for us to pray in that way. To pray that God would act on our behalf. That he would act in such a way that it would be for our good. It would be for our interests. And that he would even do so quickly. Notice these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 102.2 Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Psalm 143.7, we sang this earlier. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those that go down to the pit. And you might say, oh, I would never pray in that way. Pray for God to move hastily or speedily. No, the Psalms would say that not only should we, but we must Because it shows a holy desperation upon the Lord. That we should expect that God will answer and do so even quickly. And God indeed does act. And we see an example of that here in the third point. The the power and privilege of prayer. And we see two miracles in this passage. One by natural means and one by supernatural means. The first by natural means is the hailstones that come down from heaven. As the, these uh, armies are fleeing from Israel, it says that God threw stones upon them and that more died because of the hailstones than by the sons of Israel that killed them with the sword. And one might read that, a naturalist might read that and say, what bad luck for these armies fleeing. 
But we know that it is not by chance or happenstance, for there is no such thing. This is the providence of God. And then we see, second, then, this supernatural means. As the sun stands still, in order that the enemies could not flee, that they could not hide under the garb of darkness. So they they could not sneak away, slink away. The sun stands still for a whole extra day without setting. And these things happened, as it says, because Joshua prayed in verse 12. In fact, commanding that the sun stand still and the moon not rise. It says in verse 14, there has been no day like it before since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. It's because Joshua prayed. And God was willing to not only hear that prayer, but to answer that prayer. And so we see the power of prayer, do we not? Something that we must believe in and never doubt. Not because there is power in prayer as if it were prayer itself were powerful, as if it was some type of magic potion or hocus pocus. No, there is power in prayer because of who we pray to. It's the object of our prayers. As we pray to Almighty God, He answers our prayers and does so powerfully. James James 5 puts it this way, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. Notice that it says there that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And Joshua was the the same, that he was just a man, like a nature like ours, that God heeds prayers and even made the sun to stand still. And oftentimes our prayers will be answered normally through natural means. We will pray for healing and we will get it, but it will come through the means of doctors or medicine or we Pray for our daily bread, but oftentimes that bread, not for me at least, does not fall from heaven like manna, but it is obtained rather through gainful employment. But that doesn't mean that it's any less of an answer to prayer, is it? But God is able to answer our prayers in a supernatural way as well. That he is not confided to his own laws that he has established. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in the chapter on providence, that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. Yet, he is free to work without, above, and even against them at his own pleasure. And so if God hears our prayers and answers our prayers and does it in an ordinary way or in an extraordinary way, an extraordinary way. What a blessing and privilege it is to be able to go to the Lord in prayer. I'm thankful for our renewed emphasis upon prayer in the church. There's no greater task 
that we can give ourselves to. But before we finish tonight, isn't it interesting that this is the second time in God's good providence today that we have seen the supernatural suspension of the normal laws of light and darkness. We saw it this morning at the crucifixion of Christ, that for three hours there was darkness. And now we see here that the sun stood still for an entire day. And we notice the theme that is true with both of those stories, that there is both judgment and salvation. Here the judgment falls on the five kings that are attacking Gibeon. And as a result, Gibeon is set free. But as we saw this morning at the crucifixion, the judgment fell not upon the wicked, not upon the deserving, but upon the just and on the undeserving Lord Jesus Christ. But the end result is that we would be set free. Again, it is not altogether different. Both ourselves and the Gibeonites are unworthy to receive such a salvation. That Gibeon and us receive it by grace because of the covenant relationship that is made with Almighty God. That it comes as a gift. And as Jesus says, and as we finish up and prepare for the table, Jesus says to us, if our earthly father knows how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask us? God has given us all things good in the Lord Jesus Christ. How much more will he not give us all things through him if we ask? And so, as we go to the table now, we go to Him both for salvation as well as go to Him in prayer. And in both, He answers and does so with haste because He is a merciful and gracious God that hears our prayers, hears our requests, and saves us because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Amen.